And now it's time for We Are Just Christians live from Salome Church in St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, and welcome to We Are Just Christians. We really appreciate so much uh, you tuning into the show today. It's uh, great to great to have you here with us on the air. We'll be here for the next hour uh, on WPSL till 10 o'clock Eastern Time. And We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show. In just a moment, I'll give you more information about that, how you can reach us if you'd like to talk to us, and we'd love for you to do that. And uh, let me introduce ourselves first in case you're new to the show. My name is Mike Schmidt. I'm the preacher and one of the elders of the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. And uh, with me is uh, my partner, Gary Jones. How are you doing, Gary? I'm doing good this morning. Good. We're, we're glad we can be here today on the show. And Gary is the other elder here at the church. So we are thankful that we can be with you to, to present to this community and try to you know, teach a little bit about the idea of being just a Christian. It's a multifaceted thing. It's really a concept that goes back to New Testament times. And what we're trying to do is get people to focus on what the Bible says about being a Christian and what the Bible says about pretty much anything rather than what human tradition says about it, whether that tradition is religious or secular or just cultural, but to focus on what the scriptures say. And we think there's an interest in that. And we, you know, we'd like to examine that with you. It's not an easy thing to do in some ways. It's difficult to always apply it consistently. We make no claim that we're perfect in that at all, and that's why we always point you back to the scriptures so that you can examine for yourself how you think, what you should think, and how you ought to act. Well, that, it's interesting to me, Mike, that we, we take questions here, and and even though both of us for you know, a fair, fair amount of time have been studying scriptures, every time we look at these questions, we learn a little bit more. Right. The scriptures are very deep, and they're also very shallow for people that are new. That's right, Gary. Well, let me t- give you the numbers, and we'll get more into this uh, so you can reach it. There's pretty much any topic that you want to bring up is open for discussion. And we would particularly appreciate those who are not believers or who have had bad experiences with Christianity or Christians. If you'd like to call in and talk about that, we'd be glad to talk with you. We promise we're not going to embarrass you or just have an argument with you. We may disagree, that's fine, but we'll always give you the last word in whatever discussion we have. You can reach We Are Just Christians at the regular call number for WPSL, which is 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number. You can also reach us by text message either during the show or during the rest of the week. You can reach us by text message. Gary and I each have a, a, have a number. They're very similar, but mine is... Mike's is 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. Gary's text number is 772-260-6220, 772-260-6220. So we'd love to hear from you. So if you want to call in the show, 772-340-1590, or if you want to text us, you can text us. At the numbers I just gave. We also have an email address, which some people use. The email is very simple, justchristians at att.net, justchristians at att.net. A little bit later, I'll try to give you the inform- some more information about how to contact us and the show. We have a website, wearejustchristians.com. You can get podcasts, all kind of other stuff there at wearejustchristians.com. But anyway, we'd love to hear from you this morning by text or by call. 
We're going to put the calls at the front of the list today. So we'd uh, front uh, at the top of the list, I should say, front of the line. What am I trying to say here? I'm mixing my metaphors. <laughs> But we've got one we'll question. We'll put you on the front of the list. Yeah, anyway. but we've got a yeah. text question we need to get We to do, and, and since we have no calls right now, I think we'll, we'll go to that. It's um, – where did I put it here? Printed it out. We're, we're trying to do better about it. We're trying to do better about that and get everybody's in line. We do really do appreciate your text messages and or your, and or your calls uh, this morning. It makes the show interesting for everybody else. A lot of people would say, as you probably heard me say before, well, nobody cares about my question. It's sillier and – you know, it's an easy question, all that kind of stuff. Um, that that really isn't true in general. So, well, look, we got a phone call. So I think we're going to have to go. We're going to have to put this text message. I promise you, Jason, we'll get right back to this. So, so somehow I got to get Mike to stop talking and get to the question. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That, that's that's tougher than you think. Jerry, are you there? Uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning, Gary. I was wondering about uh, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, did I get it right that uh, Abraham was the oldest guy in the Bible, and was his union with Sarah was that was she uh, his wife's handmaid uh, because uh, he was so old, and and did their union produce Jacob, and who was Jacob in the Bible? And I'd like to listen off, Mike, if that's okay. That'd be great. Well, you know, it's interesting, Jerry, that you uh, bring that up. Uh, I don't know if you know it, and you probably don't know it, but we're studying the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings in our 10 o'clock Bible class. We don't get started because of this radio show till about 10.10 here in a little while. We'll start our Bible class, the Lord willing, and we're studying the book of Genesis, and we're right on this particular part of the Bible here in chapters 13 through, uh, say, 17 or 18 right now, and Abraham is is not the oldest person in the Bible. Obviously, Adam would be if, if that he is. He's probably the oldest person except Noah that we have a, a long account of in Genesis chapter six through nine. We have the account of Noah and the flood that happened before the time of Abraham. And that's a rather lengthy account. Noah, great man of righteousness, God calls him then. And then you find in chapter 12, the beginning, the story of Abraham, the father of the faithful, as the Bible later describes Abraham. Abraham was born in what we would call Iraq, uh, Babylon. God told him to get out of that land, migrate to where he would tell them. He ended up going north because that's the only way you can get where he was going, north and west. Uh, to He named a place Haran after his son. And then he went down... Then he later went down into what we now know of as Palestine, lived lived pretty much the rest of his life right there, except one short trip to Egypt. Never possessed any land except a, a one grave site there, but God promised him that land. He promised him to make him a great nation, promised him his seed would bless all nations in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Jerry, is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Now, Abraham did not have any children. At the time we meet him, is 75 years old. There's one point we need to make. You know, okay. Basically, we can take the question a couple of ways. The oldest person in the Bible is possibly the first person we know or goes oh, back yes, to our I, I took in it. history. Or it could be the longest, longest living That's true, Gary. And so I, that, that's, that's one of the two things. So maybe we ought to mention Methuselah. That br briefly. briefly ran through my yeah. mind. Yeah. Yes, the person who lived the longest is Methuselah. Uh, you have a reference on that? I think no, it's I don't. I, it's it was it's chapter thirty something years. I think. I think it's chapter five, but I'd have to look it up. Uh, nine hundred nine hundred and sixty nine years. Oh, sixty nine years. Okay. Yes. Uh, 
Methuselah lived that long. And uh, of course, now we we could get off, and I I don't want to do that this morning unless someone wants to call or text about it. But uh, I I don't want to get off onto why they lived so long in the early part of the Bible. I suppose we can, but I don't really know that that's really the question. But uh, no, Methuselah was the longest lived. Abraham lived much later than Methuselah, and he only lived 175 years, which yeah. the Bible calls at that time a good old age. I think Noah lived into his 900. He did. He did. 930 years. Uh, uh, that's who I was thinking about. Something around there, 30. Yeah, so. Adam lived about 931 years, something along that line. Uh, I, I, can't, I don't remember all the ages, but you'll find those in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. But, the, of course, the furthest back in history was Adam. Then we pick up Noah, and then we pick up Abraham. Yeah. And why can't I find Methuselah? Uh, anyway, maybe I misspelled it. Uh, but uh, in any event... I don't event, have a spell checker on my search engine, so... <laughs> no, I don't think I did. I think I'm just using this program wrong. I was using a computer program to find it, and uh, I, I'm not really finding... My, I can't seem to get it to work so any in any event uh, we'll we'll forget that and um uh, i think that i don't know what I, you're right i don't know exactly what jerry meant uh as to uh who was the, uh, the, the 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 more biblically related one is who is the furthest back in history because i think that's more important in studying the bible is to get the order because there's a timeline that goes through all of this in, in the coming of the Christ. And that basically, I think, contributes to that timeline. Right. I think that's more important than who lived the longest, to be honest with you. Right. So, yes, Methuselah is not a very significant character, except that he lived a long time. Yeah. He probably was alive at the time of the flood. A lot of people think that he died in the flood. Uh, so yeah, that, that that's a, that's what a lot of commentators tend to think about that. But anyway, back back to the question about Abraham. A- Abram was his first name. His given name was Abram, um, which means exalted father. In Hebrew, the word Ab A B means father, and so you you have uh, a lot of words that start with A B. And that's why Jesus mentioned the Aramaic Abba, Father, which is like Daddy. It's a, it's kind of a Dad versus Daddy or Father versus Daddy, Abba a and Ab. It's a less formal. It's, term. Yeah, it's a less formal, more affectionate term. But Abraham means exalted father. Later, when God gives him the promise that he would have uh, descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, takes him outside two different occasions, says, "Look at the sky. See all these stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have." He changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations, father of a multitude is the idea. And so he becomes, and generally throughout the rest of the Bible then, from that after this first part of his life when he's Abram, he's known as Abraham. And he was married to a woman named Sarai, which means princess, and her name was changed to Sarah, uh, which means basically uh, Oh, now I forgot the name of it. It's basically an exalted mother type of person. Now, Abraham and Sarah were 75 years old. They couldn't have any children. It was obvious from the story that uh, it wasn't like, well, since they lived longer, they weren't having children until they were in their 70s. No, they they both knew they were childless. They were barren. They had no, and that's the whole point of God making this promise to Abraham that you're going to have many children or many, many descendants is he didn't have any children. It was to me, him an impossibility. 
uh, that he would, not only because he was old, although men can father children, obviously, when they're older, but his wife certainly couldn't have any children at 75 years old. Well, later, he makes another promise to her, to Abraham, that that he's going to have a child. And so Abraham and Sarah, in their 90s, Sarah says, look, I have a handmaiden from Egypt when we were down there. I guess we got this handmaiden. She's mine, uh, and uh, she serves me. So I want you to take her for your wife or for a concubine which is like a secondary wife. This was perfectly permissible at the time in the common culture. You can take her uh, and whatever child she bears will, in the common culture of that time, be my child, be my child and be your child. So Abraham did that. Now, apparently this, this was not at all what God had in mind. Abraham comes back. There's trouble between the two. As soon as she becomes pregnant, this younger woman uh, Hagar begins to kind of gloat around Sarah. See, I can get pregnant. You can't. And so there's a lot of strife between the two. Hagar flees away. God promises her and her son that they're, they're going to be come pro- numerous and so forth. And many nations are going to come from him. But he wasn't the heir. She goes back to Sarah and so forth. And then and, and then um, God reiterates to Abraham and Sarah you're going to have a child from your own body. This is not the child. You're going to call his name Ishmael. And it's okay. going to come from Sarah. It's not God is my help, Ishmael. It's going to come from Sarah. And so when Abraham was in his late 90s, that's when this child Isaac is born. So Jacob was not the, the direct son of Abraham. Jacob was the uh, grandson of Abraham. You have Abraham, Isaac. then Isaac, and then Jacob. Right. Okay, so Abraham and Sarah had a son, a miracle. God said he provided this child, as it were, a miracle or supernatural event that a woman in her late 90s or 90 years old would have a child. Abraham was close to 100. She, he would have a child. She would have a child, I should say, and that child's name is Isaac. Then Isaac has a son. He calls his name Jacob. Jacob, later in life, his name is changed to Israel. Right. Okay. And he is the, he is the, father, the father of the, of the 12 that become, father of the, become the tribes of Israel. Right, the father of the 12 sons of Israel, the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. It's a long-involved story. involves many places where people try to intervene in God's workings, but God working, God's workings all come out to be what they are. So Abraham and Sarah have a son first by the handmaiden, Hagar, and then later by God's hand, that son is Isaac, the chosen one. See, in the Bible, we have this idea of the firstborn son. I think it's commonly misunderstood. In English, we have this word firstborn. We think first one out of the womb, the oldest child. That's not what the Bible means by firstborn, because all throughout this lineage of Christ, the firstborn, like Ishmael, and the firstborn, like even Esau, was born before Jacob, uh, are, are not the chosen ones. They're not the firstborn. The firstborn means chosen or appointed, as or it were. preeminent. Preeminent one. That's what firstborn means. It doesn't mean first one out of the womb. Now, it's used as firstborn in the sense of the firstlings of the flock. That's a little bit different usage. But even the firstlings of the flock couldn't be the firstling if they were deformed or had some defect. They weren't 
suitable, even if they were the first ones in the flock because they had a defect. Okay, so that's the general gist of the of the question, uh, Jerry. And you can find uh, the readings about this uh, if you want to read about it in Genesis one through about chapter seventeen or eighteen from the questions that you're talking about. In fact, if you go to Genesis, you can even tighten zero in. Um, if you want to read about Methuselah, got to read earlier. But if you want to zero in on Abraham, you can read beginning in chapter 12 down through about 17 or 18, maybe a little further. You get involved in the story, you'll keep reading. But that's where you find it in the first book of the Bible about Abraham. Abram, don't get confused. You'll see Abram mentioned, A-B-R-A-M. That's the same man as Abraham. His name is later changed by God. And, and bear in mind, it's not necessarily the people here that were it's important. It's the order and the timeline of what this lineage leads to that is the Christ. Yes, this was all. When God said, uh, in your seed, all nations will be blessed to Abraham, he, was, he wasn't talking about the Jews. Paul makes that very clear in Romans, uh, uh, Romans chapter, uh, excuse me, Galatians chapter 4. I was saying the wrong book, Galatians 4, when he says it's of seed as of one, not seeds as of many. So he wasn't talking about the seeds of the many Israelites. He was talking about the one seed, Jesus Christ. So all this was leading to a spiritual seed that would save all nations, not just the Jews. But you see That's all, the, the seed you see all of these Abraham. people in their different character, and not all of them are of the best character. There's some. No, God had a plan working out here. And you also understand that when you look at the New Testament, that the covenant that God made to save all nations through Christ was through Abraham, and he was not a Jew. And the Jewish nation didn't come along until much later, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision as a sign, as it were, as a covenant, before the Mosaic law, and that's Abraham. But the promise of this covenant was made even back in the time of Adam. Well, in the the Garden of Eden, God told Eve that your seed, the seed of woman, will bruise the serpent's head. He will bruise your seed's heel, but your seed will bruise his head. That's a prophecy of Christ being killed by Satan, but then Satan completely destroying Christ in the resurrection. So the the real reading through all of this is looking to the things that God says, pointing to the Christ, which is, I guess... Simply put, maybe too simply put, but the purpose of the entire purpose of the Old Testament is looking to the Christ. Right, just to point you and show you how you get to Christ. That's exactly right. Paul says so, that it it is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It's the slave that takes the student to the teacher, who is Christ. Anyway. So uh, so speaking of the Christ, maybe we ought to talk a little bit about the baptism of the Spirit. Yes, thank you, Jerry, for calling in. We have that text question that I uh, was mentioning. Where did I put that thing? Um, Talking about here's uh, a que- I have a question. It's from Jason. Okay. About John 1, 32 and thirty three. Yeah. Apparently, he was reading in the King James version. It says the Spirit descended on Jesus and abode on him like a dove. And in the next verse, he mentions baptism with the Holy Ghost. Is there a difference between the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost, or are they synonymous? So. Um, you got that passage handy? I can turn over there. Yeah, yeah, John yeah. one. Okay. I th- well, actually, I have it uh, here too. But basically, John one thirty three, uh, and again the next day. Uh, well, let's let's start. Uh, let's go back. Up. The 
let's go back up a little bit further. Let's let's go back 32. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me, baptized with water, said to me, Upon whom do you upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. I think that was the verse we were looking for. Right. Now you're reading in what version there? I'm reading in the New King James Version, okay. which, which we made clear there is no mention of a Holy Ghost in the New King James Version, which gives you the idea this again, this ghost and spirit word is the same definition. All right. When you look at, uh, uh, well, I kind of went to the wrong place here, but when you uh, when you look at those verses, if you're reading in the King James Version versus the New King James Version, you will see it that there is a difference in translation there. That's, I think, that's part of the question. That real, well, maybe that really is the question. Which is, which is it? In the King James Version, it says. It says that he saw the spirit descending and remaining on him in verse 33. And uh, then a little bit later in the same verse, it says, this is he who which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. Now, now the problem with the there, I'll just make it simple, Jason. There is no difference between the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost. The two words are translated from one Greek word. Right. When you look at the words for spirit in verse 32, even in the King James, the word spirit is pneuma, which we get like pneumatic tires or pneumonia, which means breath or air or spirit in this case. It can be a literal breath or air or used in the Greek, kind of like we do for spirits. Sometimes spirits are like alcohol. Sometimes they're uh, the spirit of St. Louis, which is more metaphorical, right? Right. So you have these usages in English as well as you do in Greek. But the word spirit is is translated spirit in chat, verse 32 early. It's pneuma. When you go a little bit later and talks about the Holy Ghost in the King James, the word is pneuma again. And so that's why the newer translations universally translated Holy Spirit instead of Holy Ghost. I have no idea really. Well, there's been some theories as to why the translators of the King James Version in 1611 put Holy Ghost. Maybe it was to make it distinct from the spirit or the human spirit. And that is a confusion in some passages. He's talking about the human spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit or God's spirit. And so maybe they did that. Or maybe they were trying to convey some mysterious nature of this, like a ghost. Because the idea of a ghost came into being, in the New Testament times, it didn't really mean something particularly scary. Although it is used a couple times to mean someone's spirit after death. Like but when, uh, it was like ghost Samuel, stories, yes. Or, or when they thought when they thought that uh, they were seeing Peter's ghost or spirit yeah. after he was released from prison. But but it doesn't have the same meaning that it does today. You know, with us with all of our ghost stories. Well, I would. So I would, it makes it mysterious. Hang on, it makes it mysterious. But it, and basically answering your question, there is no difference between the Holy Spirit and the Holy, and the Holy Ghost. It all comes same from, word. Same word. And, and I invite you to go to Vine's Expository Dictionary. It, it but you can provides, get online. Look up yeah, Vine's yeah. Expository Dictionary. And just put in spirit and or even ghost if you want to, I think, and it'll come to the same one. But basically, it comes to this Greek word pneuma, and it, it gives a very good description, and it also gives references to where the word is used. 
and how it is used. And so you can see that. Right. That that that's one of the best study. Vines is one of the best study dictionaries you can you can get. Yes, and and you can. I have a couple of different hard copies. You can go online, and it's not Vines with an apostrophe either. The man was W. E. Vines, V. I. N. E. S. Vines Expository Dictionary, and you have them both for Old and New Testament words. Now there are a couple of online versions that are not complete. They're more abridged, or, and, and I, I don't like those as well. Here's the difference. Strong's is a concordance, which gives you a references and then brief definitions of the various words in Greek and Hebrew. And it's very super useful. It shows you this word used the same place as this word, so forth. Vines, as an as a expository dictionary, it means they give you a little more breadth of definition and explanation of the words and how, how they compare to other words. If you look up, for example, blasphemy or blaspheme, you'll see that there's two or three Greek words behind the word for blaspheme and a Hebrew word. And it'll show you the differences between those or anger. Sometimes the word wrath and anger in the Bible are differentiated. And you see that they actually come from different Greek words. Some of them do. And yet sometimes the word for anger in the translation is the same word for wrath. They have a slightly different meaning. So you can learn all this stuff, and you can follow along by using Vine's Expository Dictionary available online, or you can buy it if you like a hard copy. Uh, probably can get it in a PDF. I don't know, a searchable PDF. Or you can you can get a Strong's Dictionary. Yeah, there, I, I don't have the website in front of me, but there is a website where you can get um – where you can download various PDFs of both, I think it's Vines and a lot of the commentaries that are available. Though, though I don't use the commentaries as much. You should read the Bible first before yeah, you read any commentary. Be, be careful of the commentaries. Uh, you can get led astray very easily with the commentaries. But these dictionaries are very good. They're what our translations are based on. There, there is a, there is a, a, a vines at studybible.info. There's a vines expository dictionary. There's one at studylight.org. You can go to Amazon and buy the whole things by uh, in actual book form, which I, I like the book form as well because the book form, I can just flip to it real quickly there. I know it's complete. And that kind of thing, which you'll find these. You can even get it as an app on the, in the Apple Store. Well, Vines Expository Dictionary, you can get it as an app in, and the Google hard, Store. I have two different hard copies. One is just Vines Expository Dictionary of the New Testament. And then the other one is both the New Testament and the Old Testament that comes in two two parts. So you, you get and you get the Strong's numbers. Strong's numbers the words. And uh, a lot of the references will allow you to put in that number and go to the different references for the right. Strong's. Yes. So, uh, you can, uh, by the, and you can you can get this whole <coughs> Expository Dictionary as an app on your phone. In fact, I have it installed on my phone. I don't use it as much on my phone, but it, it's installed on my phone. You can get it for Google devices as well as Apple devices. And so if you want to do that, it's a good study tool. Get you started. Because if, if you don't – and sometimes you have to read like any dictionary – if I ask you to look up the word run in a dictionary, you see it has about 40 or something different definitions of the word run. But the word run means the same thing in all 40 places as a base root word. But to, to have a run in a stocking and to, to run a red light 
or to have are, a run of different a, products. A run of different products. All are different in their exact meaning, but they all have the same root definition of a, you know, a fast movement along something. And so you get to see that. Now, you have to pick out one and say, well, that's what it means. You have to read all of them and all see right. which one fits more likely. To that. Let me just read an example of Vines on Numa. Uh, definition C, the immaterial, invisible part of man. And then it says Luke 8.55, Acts 7.59, 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, James 2.26, uh, Ecclesiastes 12.7, and Basically, what he's doing is he's giving you the passages where you can go look at the context of that definition. Of that definition. And he, and he's probably going to parallel it with the Hebrew words that are used right. he did or the Greek from the Septuagint. Yeah. Here's the other thing that a lot of people overlook, which because it's just not something that would be common knowledge, is that the Old Testament was written in he, the Hebrew language. Um, and the New Testament basically in the Koine or common Greek language. Now, in we also have an Old Testament translation made before the time of Christ called the Septuagint, which means 70 men, basically, basically who translated the Old than, Testament than, into Greek. More than 300 Greek. years before Christ. Right. So we have this Old Testament text, not only in Hebrew, but we have it in Greek. And so sometimes you'll see, he will give you a like the word pneuma used in the in the New Testament, but he'll also give you references to that, how the translators put that word parallel with the Hebrew. Uh, and you have some things like that. You also have some Aramaic words. But you don't have to be an ex you don't have to be able to read Greek or Hebrew to use vines or strongs. That's the point I'm making. Yes. It it's sometimes helpful to be able to recognize this. Uh, these two yes. things. But anyway, briefly briefly to answer your question, Jason, there don't don't get confused by Holy Ghost. I I've, I've switched from I, I grew up reading the King James and studying the King James and I went to college and then took all my advanced courses and stuff. Uh, they they at the place I use all the professors use the 1901 American Standard Version ASV. I think it's still the best version for me. It's very literal, but it's got a lot of it's got the these and the thous and the likeths and the whatnots and all that in it. Not quite as bad as the King James. But I used to, and I used that for 25 or more years in preaching. Tore that Bible up, pages flying everywhere. Had to rebound two or three times. My wife says, "Look, you got to modernize. You got to get something that doesn't fall apart." And so I went with the, when I when I started projecting all these scriptures up on the screen here, like I do every week. I went with something that was more commonly and easily read. Like I went with the New King James Version. Now I'm not saying that's the only version or even the best. My wife used, still uses the New American Standard, which is a good translation. Uh, I like that one better than the NIV, the New International Version, in my opinion, but in any event, I project the New King James. It doesn't have the these and thous, a little more, uh, but it's the same basic text as the King James Version. So those those are, that makes a little difference. So if you're using the King James Version, you're going to have to wade through some of that. Now, I don't mind wading through the these and the thous. It's like second nature to me. And all the other changes in literature, I mean, changes in usage that are used, like the word conversation. Let your conversation be seemly among the Gentiles. That's the King James. Well, the word conversation does not mean talking back and forth in a, in a as we would call it, a conversation in King James. It means what we would call lifestyle. So the new King James, so let your manner of life 
or your way of life be seen. Yeah. That's the meaning of the king of the word conversation in 1611. It's changed definitions. Now you can find all this stuff out. You can learn this. So there's no reason not to use the King James if you're comfortable with it. It's not the only author uh, only in, it's only authorized by King James, which means nothing to me whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> That's why they call it the authorized version. But it, it's certainly a good translation, as well as the other versions, the newer ones like the uh, the ASV to some degree and the New Americans are, are based on some different manuscripts, which many people think are older manuscripts. And there so, are some very slight differences in those manuscripts that give you different Greek words or slightly different Hebrew usages. But uh, if you look at them Basically, if you're careful about it, you're going to in most of the cases, you're going to come to the conclusion. It doesn't really make any difference. Right. Uh, so going back to that now, I was going to ask another question, Mike. Did 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 he say something about uh, baptism of the spirit in that question? Was there something there that we uh, No, it just it just says just he mentions baptism with the Holy Ghost. Okay. I think the question was not so much about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, but about the uh the difference between spirit and ghost. Okay. If you want to get into the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I can't. I'd rather well, save it for another show, personally. But we yeah, can it, do that. It could be a long, a long conversation. Uh, but if 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 anybody else wants to know about that, search. Give either, us a either text case, or call I'd about say that. About baptism is that it is in the Greek definition, it is an immersion. Uh, it is um, whether you're immersed, you know, metaphorically in something to be caught up by it or basically immersed like in water to actually be dipped completely it's an immersion so that's that's what i'm going to leave it at right well yeah it's a dipping <coughs> that's right and like now, a, it's like dyeing a cloth you don't just partially sprinkle a cloth with something or pour dye over a piece of cloth you actually completely immerse the cloth in the dye and that's the idea behind the word well now do you want to go to a a uh, text completely cold gary this would be fun <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is from this is from ken it says and i think he i think he had uh, texted me a little bit earlier and i'd overlooked it that in john 8 okay um 8 51 through 58 in verse 56, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see, quote, my day, and he saw it and was glad. What do you think he means by my day? His incarnation, his sacrifice on the cross, resurrection, or all the above? And did Melchizedek reveal this to him? I don't know about Melchizedek revealing this to him. Uh, but he asked then to comment on John 8, 56, or, and, or Romans 3, 22, which we'll have to look up. So here is well, my first impression, and I'm I'm going to say this is just my first impression, is uh, by my day he means all of those things. Well, that's what I've always thought. My day would mean the time of Jesus Christ being alive, and it would include his life, death, burial, resurrection, his incarnation, the whole thing, everything that he came to earth to do. All parts of Jesus' ministry are important to our salvation. The incarnation, nothing could happen without that because he had to become a man in the flesh to save men. And those who say that Jesus did not come in the flesh, John says, are the Antichrist. 
Okay. Right. So I know that coming in the flesh as an incarnation is is extremely significant to Jesus' work, and that's part of his day. His sinless life, his teachings, and so forth to point people. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's talking about his life there. Okay, what he's not just his physical body, but he's talking about the way he lived, what he act, what he said. And then his death and burial and resurrection all have to do really precisely with our salvation. Which is future to what he's saying here. Right. And then his exaltation and ascension is, a, is essential because that's how he, he takes his blood back to the Father, puts it on the Father's throne, as it were, the whole true mercy seat, the book of Hebrews says. And now he is the priest reigning forever after the order of Melchizedek. So all that is my day, in my opinion, about that. Well, I think, and I don't think it comes from Melchizedek, because basically a little bit further up, I think he says, uh, he, he uses this as a point to that, that I think the, um, was it part of the scribes and the Pharisees believed that there was no resurrection, there wasn't basically a life after death, and Jesus says there was. Uh, basically, he's saying, for the most part, if there wasn't any, Abraham wouldn't be looking at me. You see, what did he say? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right, right. And uh, so the implication is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and seeing what's going on, not just Abraham. Right. That that these are the things that go on. So, Okay. Um, in any event, this is, uh, I would say that the my day includes everything. And this is a tremendously important passage. Oh, that Ken brought oh, up here. Verse 58 is really yeah, important. Him saying that he was telling them about Abraham and um, are you greater than our father? Abraham, they asked Jesus. Well, what's the answer? Of course, he is, uh, which is dead and the prophets are dead. Whom makest thou thyself? Because he was saying that uh, if you I say to you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Verse 51. And so they're, say, they're saying, well, you say you, if you keep your sayings, you won't see death. Well, Abraham is greater than you, and he, he's dead. All the prophets are dead. They're greater than you. Well, Jesus was trying. So they're ignoring the very obvious fact he's trying to say is that he right. is greater than those two. Right. And they say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Right. And Jesus said, sure. <laughs> right. And verse so 58, your most, father. <laughs> yeah. Verse 58, most assuredly, I say to you. Before Abraham was, I am. And he's saying Yahweh there, or the I am. He's using the name of God. I, he, they, and they knew this. Then they took up, took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself. When he said, before Abraham was, I am, they knew exactly what he was saying. What he, was saying. he uses the words there to show them that I have been in existence before Abraham. And so they took up stones to cast him. So those who say, this is interesting, because a lot of people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. They just haven't read it carefully enough. In his day and time, the people he was talking to, he very clearly claimed to be the Son of God, claimed to be eternal, and all those things. And that, and that's why they put him to death, because he claimed to be those things in front of them. And they, the Pharisees and scribes understood this. Well, I don't I, know that all the common people understood it. Well, I think they used this claim to put him to death. I'm not sure that's why. I think... Basically, well, yeah, they did it out of envy. Even well, Pilate they, they said, that. you know, if we let him go, he's going to come and take away our place and our nation. They were going to lose their position. And they were and probably see when you're a wicked person like like they were. Some of the some of the Sanhedrin were good people. You have Nicodemus there, and and you have uh, 
maybe some others, but most of them were wicked politicians. And and so the wicked ones had to convince the good ones like Nicodemus and others to go along with them. There's always the middle of the ground, middle of the road guys on any group. That's why yeah. committees can't get anything done. They don't really want to do anything to rock the boat. Well, these wicked ones had to convince the good ones and the neutral ones that Jesus should be put to death or opposed. And they used this trumped up charge that he's claiming to be God, and that's a bad thing. They didn't listen to the miracles. They ignored all that to get all the other ones on their side. But did they care or believe it? No. If, if they really thought he was a son of God or was claiming to be the son of God, they would have been about this a whole different way, you see. But but they didn't care about that. Uh, uh, that's how it kind of works. Um, we had another comment about this. Uh, well, he says, if you don't believe what I say, believe the works that I do. That was in John. Uh, I'll find it in a minute. I think it was John 9. But I'll find the word. But basically, Jesus says, if you don't believe what I say, and he's talking to them, he says, you need to believe the works that I do. Look at, you know. Believe your lying eyes. Basically, it's it's this is what I'm doing, and uh, he says this. So, what can I say? That they refused to see the things that their eyes told them were were, were happening. Yes. Um, Did I get ahead of you? A little bit. Well, I was looking at other texts. I don't know if we can have time to go back to that one exactly, but I guess the point was being made here. Uh, John text in um, that it's interesting that well, he says something about Utah in reference to the many wives and concubines, I guess. But it's interesting that John does not mention Jesus being baptized by John in the river. He said, sorry, that reference believes the works is John 14 and 12 and following. OK, if you don't believe me, believe my yeah. works. Yes. And that's the evidence that God right. gave. The works are the evidence God put in front of them right. of all the miracles. These saying these people that had watched him literally watched him raise Lazarus from the dead and then saw Lazarus after he was dead and back alive again, ate dinner with him. They still wouldn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. So, I mean, there's not much more you can do than raise a man from the dead uh, than that. And that's when things turn right. against Jesus pretty badly. So he says by this time, by the time that John was written, the book of John, this author did not want Jesus baptized because that would mean Jesus had sin. Now, I, I guess um, I guess he's referring to the fact here that perhaps I guess I've always been under the impression that John, he went to John to be baptized and so forth. And um, well, he says the baptism in that in that place, I, I've, I've got to go to the uh, do this to fulfill all righteousness. So that's that's not in John, though. He, that's, see, that's the that's he's count. He's saying John was written by someone much later after New Testament times and so forth. I, I don't I don't agree with that. But that that really John it really deals with things mostly that he was a witness to. I'm not sure he was a witness to this, but he's right, and I I probably stand corrected if I've said this before. That um, it doesn't he doesn't make, give the account of John being baptized in the Jordan River like Matthew does, uh, and and Luke do. Uh, John the John in the book in the Gospel of John does not. 
but John bear record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove into the boat on him. Well, when did that happen? Well, according to the other, according to the, that's reason I've always thought that this talked about that. He says, I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, am I come baptizing with water and John bear record. I'm talking about John 132 now saying, I yeah. saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and in a boat on him. Well, when was that? That was at his baptism. Right. That's when the other gospels record this. It remained on him. And the same as he which baptized with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. But this is uh, this is in the context of John bearing witness of what he saw. Right. Uh, and so he said he saw the Spirit descending and, and yeah. resting upon Christ. So I, I don't know that he's trying to contradict the other accounts of this. But he's saying, I saw the Spirit descending. When did that happen? Well, it happened at his baptism. But anyway, that's an interesting comment. I have to look I have to look at look into that a little bit more when I get a chance. But um those are a couple of the things that we have texts and calls about today, Gary. Yeah, um, we've gotten through several questions. While you're looking up where we're going to go next, let me let me give some information about the show here. You can reach the show in case you're just tuned in at at the regular call in number for WPSL. We have time for calls this morning still at seven seven two Three four zero fifteen ninety seven seven two three four zero fifteen ninety. Well, let's let's talk a little bit when you get a chance about Matthew three. Okay. And and thirteen through fifteen because I think that's he says then Jesus came to Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized of him and John tried to prevent him saying I need to be baptized by you are you coming to me basically John saying this is not. This is not normal. This is not the order of things. Well, John knew it wasn't about sin anyway. Right. He knew it wasn't about him because but he knew Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed it. So Jesus did this for some other reason than what we see in Acts 2.38. Well, he, he was he, the, the point he made to people was. When, John, when God sent a prophet like John the Baptist was obviously a prophet sent from God, Jesus said he is the Elijah that God <laughs> promised was coming in the book of Malachi. When John said to repent and be baptized in the Jordan River, I think Jesus was saying it was incumbent upon the people to go and be baptized by John. And so he's telling me, how can I, he's saying, how can I go and teach people to listen to what God says when I won't listen to what God says? Even though I don't have sin, I'm going to go to fulfill all. It's also a righteous thing to obey God. Even if you would say, I don't have sin that I need to repent of, right. you go and you do what God says, which is a prophet says, be baptized in the Jordan River, then you go do that. Exactly. That's the point of fulfilling all righteousness. And Jesus did that to fulfill righteousness, not because he was a sinner. So I think people were perfectly capable of understanding that Jesus was baptized not because he was a sinner, but because he was doing what God wanted him to say. Un unless, like the Catholic Church, you've made baptism into a ritual that you know, it means nothing, has nothing to do with your own personal belief and so forth. Uh, I think uh, we're going to talk about that in a future show. But um, that, is that the point you want to make yeah, about him, would, why was, he was baptized? It, basically, in, in Mark 16, 16, he who, he who believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's command form. That's Jesus telling you a command. Right. Uh, when we get to Acts 2.38, we see 
something else involved in that command, and Jesus is fulfilling the command here. That's that's at least what I got out of uh, out of uh, Matthew three fifteen. Right, right. Well, we have another uh, another text uh, that we can talk about. Uh, hang on a minute here. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, making a note to myself so I don't forget something. Trying to talk, make <laughs> notes. Think which, about what I'm going to, you know. It, which questions it we used to, Yeah, it used to work better than it does now at nearly 70 years old. But we had another text which basically wanted to know what our comments were about this archbishop of the Catholic Church, Corleone. I keep thinking of the godfather, Corleone. Anyway, <laughs> Corleone's banning Nancy Pelosi from receiving communion due to her uh, views on abortion. The part that so I remember that. about that, that she said that's not his job. Yes, my she impression said that's not was his job. that is exactly yeah, that, his job. That is exactly his under job. Under the Catholic Church. Now, we may have mentioned this briefly in another show, but this, this came in later, so I wanted to comment it, it, it again. Um, look, we Gary and I, I'm going to comment about this just so you know the background. Uh, we don't put any stock in what the Catholic Church teaches as being from the Bible. If it if it's from the Bible, great. If it's not from the Bible, that's the way it is. And I think most of what they're teaching, we don't put any a stock or have any uh, recognize any authority of an archbishop or a cardinal or a pope. We don't think you should either recognize their authority in religious matters. And we don't agree with the Catholic Church's view and practice of what communion or the Eucharist is. As, as a sacrament of the church that sanctifies and makes you holy, that you have to receive uh, after you've been to confession at the hand of a priest to be dispensing this grace. None of that stuff is in the Bible with respect to the Lord's Supper or communion is called in the Bible. It's not called the Eucharist. So we don't call it the Eucharist because the Bible doesn't call it. The Bible gives it two names at least, the Lord's Supper and, and communion. In First Corinthians, so we call it by those names which the Bible gives it, not by some other made-up name, Eucharist, which, and so forth, which we could discuss the meaning of that another time. But in the event, we don't put any stock in any of those things. But I do have respect for the fact that that this Archbishop is saying what this person who goes around claiming to be a Catholic, Nancy Pelosi's claimed for decades that she is a faithful Catholic. And she does this for political reasons, so people, even though she has secular views about almost every subject you can think of, not religious views, secular views of morality about every subject you can think of, she wants people to somehow think that she is a religious person who respects the authority of God to run her life. The church that she claims to be a member of says abortion is a grievous sin. Those who sanction abortion are grievous sinners. And she expects them to give her communion, which is the communion in the Catholic Church is a sign of being faithful. It, it, I don't think the Bible teaches it's a sign of, of being faithful. It's the mark, but that's what she believes. And so when this archbishop comes out and says, I don't, I'm not going to give you communion anymore because you're obviously taking positions and advocating for things that are against church teaching, clearly against church teaching. I think he's being consistent with what he believes. He's being consistent with his responsibility, and she is being completely inconsistent with her beliefs or her supposed religion. She needs to renounce Catholicism if she doesn't believe that abortion, if she believes abortion is Or renounce abortion. Or renounce abortion. 
renounce Catholicism, or at least say, uh, I, I still think I'm a Catholic, but I disagree with the po- I, I disagree with them about this, and I'm not going to worry about communion. She needs to take a more consistent stand, and this wouldn't happen. So uh, I have respect for the Archbishop, and there's a bunch more that have said the same things about a bunch of other politicians. Ted Kennedy had this problem when he was alive, and and a bunch of other politicians. Um, Joe Biden has this difficulty. Okay, oh, he yeah. claims to be a practicing faithful Catholic. They keep touting that. And yet he's on here, you know, yet he's and he even believes that life begins at conception. He said so whether he meant to or not, he said so the other day. And yet he champions a woman's right to kill this life that's now been right conceived. Up to and including, right up to and including birth. Right. So these are not at the very minimum. These are not consistent Catholic positions. And I have zero problems with the Catholic bishop or anybody else coming out against that. Now, the pope has given mixed messages about this. The Pope is a Jesuit, and most people don't know very much about all of these um, different Catholic orders, but the Jesuits are among the most liberal and progressive of all of the Catholic orders of priests. And so he's given lots of mixed messages about a lot of subjects, abortion included, homosexuality included, and so there's this big, huge divide. There, there's a bigger split about to happen in the Catholic Church, or potentially about to happen in the Catholic Church than most non-Catholics are aware of, Gary. I was reading something about that this week. There is a huge schism developing among Catholics around the world over this pope and his positions on homosexuality and abortion. And a bunch of his followers, his he has cardinals aligned with him around the world who are you know, taking these positions, he's a he's appointing them to high positions in the Catholic Church, and this is not going to end well because there's going to be the same struggle in the Catholic Church around the world. There has been the Episcopalians and the Lutherans and churches like that, the Methodists uh, and the United Methodists over these same cultural issues. They're not really cultural issues; they're issues that have. There are moral issues that the modern culture has spoken about and decisively come down against what the Bible says. Modern culture's views on abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, uh, lots of other issues like that are diametrically opposed to what the Bible says about those things. And so since culture is in such great conflict with the Bible, it puts religious people in a quandary at times. And these denominational churches, most of them, the big, especially the more what we would call mainline churches, they would call them, meaning you're, they're not radical like you and me, Gary. They're, they're not extremists like you and me. They have taken a, a more conciliatory, compromising position toward these moral issues. It's led to splits among in many of these denominations, Lutherans, Methodists, United Methodists, Presbyterians. It's led to splits in all these denominations, led to drastic declines in membership in these mainline Protestant denominations, and it's also having the same effect in the Catholic Church. And that's about to get a lot worse, you see. That's about well, to get a lot the, the worse. The hypocrisy of it becomes obvious after a while. Well, i tell you what, the, the Catholic, yeah, it is a hypocrisy, you're right. Uh, the, the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church is even more profound in that for decades they have defended these priests with their teaching on celibacy. They've defended and and 
turned a blind eye to homosexuality in the Catholic Church. I have some articles written by various bishops and archbishops about this in the Catholic Church. And I have some sympathy in this, that a lot of the things the Catholic Church was accused of covering up weren't even illegal at the times that they didn't report it. Oh, they didn't report this. Well, they were under no legal obligation to report it. When it happened, they're trying to go back and put place laws on the Catholic Church that exist today that did not exist in the 70s and 80s. On the other hand, this Catholic bishop himself says our real problem has always been homosexuality among priests. And this homosexuality takes the form, look, homosexuality to a large degree, not all, but homosexuality to a large degree among men involves younger men and boys. It always has from the time of the Romans and Greeks down to today. It's about younger men. You can read the writings of the older homosexuals as they age, how that is all about youth and beauty and their sexuality, not about love and commitment. Although lesbian homosexuals divorce at a much higher rate than, than the others. But in any event, they got a problem with this because they've turned a blind eye to homosexuality for decades and decades, and therefore other sexual sins in the priesthood. And now all that's coming home to roost at the very time they're trying to take a firm stand against abortion. Okay, I got it. Doesn't I, work. Anyway, I'm. Okay, I got to make a correction. I, I referenced John 14 about uh, believing the works. I'm, I got to correct that. It's actually John 38, John 10, 38. You should start reading from John 10, 34 down through John 10, 39. And it will talk about Jesus telling them, look at the works I'm doing. I am the son of God. If you do not believe me, believe the works. That's okay. in John 10, 38. Sorry, I, I'm, That's okay. I'm, I misquoted John 14. I wanted to make that correction before we, before we quit today. So, I appreciate that. I got another comment. We got another comment about this baptism thing. We'll try to get back to it. We've only got a couple minutes left. But but I wanted to finish real quick what I'm saying about this abortion thing. Uh, no, I don't sanction what the Catholic – it just points out the hypocrisy of these politicians who want to use – and I would – look, Jimmy Carter is supposedly some religious man. I was opposed to Jimmy Carter touting himself as a Christian back in 1975 or 76 whenever he ran. He ran in 75 and he was elected in 76. Because it, it I, I could tell it just wasn't going to match up, and I don't think people. I, I think some of, some of our most, as it were, religious presidents were, did not campaign on being a religious president, if that makes any sense. Right. Okay, now I won't go into some examples because it'll just muddy the waters. But I have very great suspicion about these people that want to tout their religion and then go around promoting, obviously, secular humanism as their religious belief. And I don't I don't mind the Catholic Church sanctioning them at all for this kind of behavior. Now, I don't know if that's what Jason wanted me to say or not, or that answers his question. I couldn't say, but that, that's my comment about it. And Gary's comment, probably the same or close. Now, we talked about this baptism about Jesus and, and, and I, we address a little bit. I'm going to go back and do a little bit of reading about John here. But Ken texted in that the bride and the bridegroom in a Jewish wedding have, have both have to be ritually mitzvah or baptized. So Christ as the bridegroom and the bride, the church, both have to be baptized. I think that's an interesting comment. Well, we've got one minute left. Thanks for listening today to the show. We're going to wrap things up. We appreciate it very much. Hope you'll tune in again next week. You may, you may reach us by mail at, at justchristians at att.net. You can also come and be with us in our services at, this morning at 10, at 11, 
Uh, and at 7.30 on Wednesday nights, we have Bible classes also. We have communion preaching at 11 this morning, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard, 2196. You can also look up Savona Boulevard Church of Christ on YouTube, and you can follow our services by live stream. I'll try to get you a more exact address, but if you if you Googled on YouTube, uh, Church of, uh, Savona Boulevard Church of Christ or Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. You'll get our YouTube services. Or just email follow, them. follow along. Email us and we'll send you yes. the links. We appreciate so much. Thank you very much. For WBSL Port St. Lucie.